<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. When I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for a little bit? that John finally got just after that and we were both of a do what you wanted to do what you wanted to do. If you think it was more keep it you know scrap it. Yeah it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, longtime Canadian television and radio sports guy, and for just as long, a dedicated music guy, and especially a Beatles guy. Why don't you join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. I will mention that this is The Walrus Was Paul, an award-winning podcast. Yes, indeedy, this podcast was voted winner outstanding music series at the 2022 Canadian Podcast Awards. I'm proud of that. I've been doing this podcast now since July of 2020 and have released over 50 episodes and spoken with some of the finest in the Canadian music world about some of the greatest music ever recorded. So there are a bunch of episodes now over three years old that are buried in the archive and out of view. So what I've decided to do is to re-release some of those old episodes in the hope that they will be discovered by new listeners. Maybe you. Who knows? Maybe you've been a listener for even a year or two, but haven't gone all the way back in the archive. I still have many new episodes coming out for sure, but I'm going to re-release some of the really old ones as well because there are some cracking episodes going all the way back to when I started this project. So, in recognition of this week, marking 58 years since the release of the Beatles' Rubber Soul album, I'm re-releasing a couple of episodes that feature two members of one of Canada's greatest bands, Blue Rodeo, talking about that great album, track by track. I love Rubber Soul. Now, I like all of the Beatles albums, but you go back to 1965 and that was a transition year for the Beatles. Uh, they released two albums that year, Help and then Rubber Soul. And if you go back and you listen to them, so remember before Help came Beatles for Sale and then after Rubber Soul came Revolver. So a real transition through the two albums, and I think maybe Rubber Soul uh, a touch more so than Help. Both great records, but Rubber Soul maybe just a notch above. So a lot of fun talking about an album that 
I really like, and our guests do as well. Uh, Jim Cuddy is one of Canada's finest singers and songwriters with writing partner Greg Keeler in Blue Rodeo. Jim has given birth to many classic tunes known by music fans, not just in Canada, but around the world. A Try, After the Rain, Till I'm Myself Again, and on it goes. Uh, Blue Rodeo has sold over 5 million albums, and Jim has also released a bunch of solo records. Find out all you want to know about Jim at jimcuddy.com. His Blue Rodeo bandmate, the outstanding guitar player Colin Cripps, has produced and played and written with, to name a few, Colin James, Kathleen Edwards, Brian Adams, Big Wreck, Sarah McLaughlin, and so on. He's been the lead guitar player in Blue Rodeo for the last decade, and he has been at Jim's side on all of Jim's solo albums. You can visit Colin's website, colincrips.com, for info on his solo work. Uh, both of these guys, Jim and Colin, are also on Instagram and on X or Twitter. The website for this podcast is romycast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. And if you head there, you can find many of the episodes that we have done so far. But again, this is a special episode, a re-release of a vintage archive episode from 2020. So let's dig into this vintage episode. It It was originally recorded in the summer of 2020. It was, in fact, the first episode ever of the Walrus Was Paul podcast. We were in lockdown in Canada and around the world. There were no COVID vaccines yet, and in-person interviews, in-person anything, uh, wasn't happening. So apologies for some dropouts in the audio at times, but this was recorded over Zoom. Uh, Zoom has gotten better over the years. Back in 2020, it could be hit and miss. So apologies for that. Not much I can do about it all these years later. So uh, we talked about rubber soul and we're going to dive into side one of that album and pick it up with me welcoming jim and colin with a big thanks for their time and wanting to share their love of the beatles with us oh thanks for having us it's great love talking beatles we do it anyway <laughs> <laughs> well let's start off then uh how did the beatles come into your life and what's your first memory of the beatles Okay, so I am the. You guys are too young to have. You are secondhand Beatle fans, as you know. You yeah. got them when you were, you know, said, "Oh, that happened last decade." So I'm the right age, so that when when you know when they're uh, when they're on TV. So when they're out in '63, I'm uh, I'm seven years old, and then I just we just go from there. So for me, they were the first. I mean, I'd listened to AM radio, but they were the first um, music. I heard that I realized was just for us, was just for young people. And it, I mean, I, I can't tell you how exciting it was seeing them on set, Ed Sullivan. And they were our Christmas records every every year. I mean, we always got them. Well, I can tell a story later, but we, the first record we got was a false positive. But after that, we got all the right ones. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, what about you? Well, my, uh, I, it, funny enough, yes, I agree with Jim that I'm, uh, I'm just... Uh, young enough that I missed the actual, um, you know, the real thrust of their popularity in the 60s. But I do remember very distinctly, um, my parents used to buy the records. And when I was five years old, my dad got what was then, a, you know, this new technology a cassette ta- uh, cassette deck, <laughs> not a tape, not a reel to reel, a cassette deck. So, and then, and so, 
in this such this setup, they'd have a record and then you could have the cassette deck and you could actually record, you know, the records to the cassette deck and you could also sing along to them. So when I was six years old, my mom, they had gotten Rubber Soul. And I remember distinctly the first song I ever really remember singing or trying to sing was uh, Norwegian Wood with my mother in this little, you know, Ampex um, cassette deck. So that's my first history of it. And then I do remember actually, as Jim mentioned, you know, uh, my first Christmas record that I remember was Abbey Road. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Jim, you brought up an interesting point uh, in that you experienced the Beatles firsthand. I experienced kind of the echo of the Beatles, and I guess it was a different thing. Oh, I think it was. I mean, look, I, you know, I'm just kidding about getting the echo. I mean, I know that you guys are, were there when like you were you were children when they were still a band. So that's a lot different than hearing about them later after they weren't a band. But I think that there was something uh, there was something to be there was something extremely exciting about feeling like you were part of of a, a huge generation of kids that were experiencing this without necessarily their, their parents' approval. I mean, we watched the Beatles because we watched um, Ed Sullivan. I'm not, I guess my dad would have would have turned it on, but had there been, you know, 60 minutes or something on at the time, we might not have. But it was a phenomena, and it was the first phenomena that wasn't just a toy, that was just for kids. So there, there, was, there was something uh, meaningful about that. And, and I certainly look back you know, I always bug my own children that they'll never have the kind of childhood I did because they don't have the social and music revolution that uh, that sprung up. So all the good things are over and I hope they enjoy their lives. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's, it's always uh, I've just started doing this and it, it's always interesting when an artist agrees to do it, and I sort of go, I wonder what album they're going to pick. And, and sometimes you're surprised. So I had Stephen Page on, and and he picked Tug of War, a Paul McCartney solo record, which, which surprised me a little bit. Uh, Dave Bedini, Rio Statics, picked Sgt. Pepper. So not, not a massive surprise, because I think you can hear a bit of that experimentation in some of their tracks, maybe. Uh, Stephen Stanley, uh, Lowest of the Low, Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, yeah. Now, now, you guys, I was trying to guess what album you guys would pick, and I was sort of coming down. I, I didn't know whether you'd go sort of white album with the kind of that indie sound to it or whether you'd be help Rubber Soul area. You chose Rubber Soul. Why did you pick that, guys? Go ahead, Carl. Well, you know, we both agreed that it's a bridge album, and I think in the in the sense that it that it really defines the, the, the evolution of them moving further away from the direct influences that they had from their earlier records. And it also, I mean, the songs are, um, I mean, they're by and large all classic songs. And uh, the artistry and the craftsmanship in the writing, as well as the recording techniques that they also have, they evolve more and more to uh, make that record sort of the significant record for me. Right. Now, Jim, did you guys discuss it or was it immediately where you went? 
I think that we, we briefly discussed it, but we both we both figured Rubber Soul would be would be the one. And I and I think for a lot of the reasons that that Colin said that it, it that it it's it's the transformative record for them. And and for me, since it, it's all lodged in in childhood memories, I remember thinking when it came out and hearing Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, and then hearing the record that Beatlemania was different now. It was no longer about the mop tops and and uh, and the suits. It was something different, and it somehow was reflective of other things in the culture. It was sort of reflective of hippies. It was it was reflective of of music, of folk music a little bit. That was definitely piquing my interest, and so all of it sort of came at the right time. I loved the look of acoustic guitars and acoustic instruments. And I, and I love the Beatles look, you know, I like the mop top stuff too, but even after three years, it was, it was great to see a change. Mm. So it was significant for me. Yeah. And they, they even look different on the cover. It's, it's the first cover where the word Beatles didn't appear somewhere. And you just, you have, you have those four faces kind of looking down and they've all got those, uh, the brown cord jacket on and the, the mop tops. They look tired to me, uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> which. Well, that's also the record where I see them starting to re- like visually, they really start to separate and become their personas really start to define themselves. Because before then they were sort of, you know, they all wore the same suits and they all had the same hair relatively. So that was also a distinction that the personalities in there as a, you know, as a whole were really sort of um, decided and, 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 you know, um, they flourished in that year. So, yeah, there was also this sense that, you know, help had been the poor cousin of Hard Day's Night. And as great as the songs were, it was... It, there was this just this feeling that they were running out of steam a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Rubber Soul happens and all that stuff's put aside and there's a brand new era at which they are again the greatest. So yeah. it was, you know, it was thrilling. Well, let me give you some context and uh, and then we'll start to go through it. So it's 1965, busy year for the Beatles. I think they all were back then. Still still kind of in the Beatlemania thing. They're all in their earlier mid-20s. So in the early part of the year, February, they start shooting the movie Help, as well as recording the album of the same name. Shooting goes on in Austria, Bahamas, and in London. Takes place through February, March, and April and the first couple of weeks of May. Now, concurrent with shooting the movie, they're recording the album. So they're doing both at the same time. Then in June, at the end of the month, they kick off a 13-day, eight-city, 15-performance tour of France, Italy, and Spain. They come back home. They have about a month and a half off. Then it's off to the U.S., 16 days, 10 cities, 16 shows. Uh, That was the one where they played Shea Stadium for the first time, 55,600 people with amps that you guys probably have in your rehearsal hall now. (laughs) They're probably (laughs) probably bigger than the ones they had. Then they come back to the U.K. They get their MBEs from the Queen at Buckingham Palace at the end of September. And then on October 12th, 1965, they walk into EMI studios to start recording their second album of the year so still about two and a half months to go in the year you've shot a movie made an album played 31 shows in 18 cities in europe and the u.s and now okay boys time to make your second album of the year and you have about a month to do it now as creative types can you for people listening put that 
into perspective from the standpoint of a creative person? I mean, Jim, how deep does the well have to be? Well, not just the we, you know, not just the well being deep, but also the fact that they had to change gears. I mean, Norwegian wood is not like help. It's not. It's it's completely different. So maybe these songs had been germinating a while, or they certainly. I mean, they were certainly thinking that they couldn't keep up the touring pace anymore. I, I've never read anything that they didn't couldn't keep up their recording pace but they couldn't keep up their touring pace. So I would assume that at this time they were, they were just, um, they were just oozing with songs and oozing with ideas and that, and that what they needed was the right um, setting to make them in. And, and the setting couldn't be, let's write a bunch of hits for a movie or let's write 10 singles and, and carry on. Um, I think it's significant that uh, it was, first or second record that was only um, only original songs. Is that right? Yes, yes. And so, okay. I'll, you know, and also that there's two more songs on the British release than the American release. And uh, so they must have just, they must have just been firing, you know, all cylinders, just writing and thinking about stuff. And, and obviously being such creative guys, they, they wanted to expand their orchestra too. They didn't want to be just Rickenbacker's and and Hofner bass and and uh, and uh, you know just a simple quartet anymore. So I'd assume that they were champing at the bit to get to this moment. Even though it just still seems in October they go in and by December it's released. That's still amazing. But they must have been champing at the bit to do it. Colin. Uh, well, you know, there's not much I could add. I, I agree with everything Jim says. Uh, and I, uh, the one thing I would add to it was the. Um, that uh, the creative thing that, that, you know, like I think they were, yeah, running, they were running on all cylinders at, at that point. I think that, you know, as, I mean, we can't compare ourselves literally, but in some respects, you know, when we do, we have really busy years and things just kind of happen after each other. There's something about how you, you organize yourself to compartment as best you can for those events, because it is, it is, it's still, uh, part of what we do is that we go and tour. And then once we finish touring, we have to start thinking about making a record. Well, in between those two times, there's usually creative ideas that are being sort of, you know, germinating and there's things that are happening. So you're always in that sort of state of thinking that you're going to go from one step to the next and to the next. And that's kind of the routine you build. Well, you think about what they were doing for those. I mean, at that point, they've been doing it for four years pretty much solid so that i think that was part of just how they managed you know the um, the responsibilities to what they had to do and uh the other thing i would have said is that in uh in the early part of 1965 it's a little technical thing but i think it might lend itself to the idea of what sort of germinates with the way songs come about is you know 65 is the first year that they actually started implementing the use of two tape machines to record. So before that, they had the primary four track machines and then the machine and they would do things, they would organize things very much in that way that, that they were limiting themselves as far as what they could accomplish on tape. So I think that also helped them think and start to, it must have helped them start to think more and more about experimentation and more about how they could do things that they otherwise couldn't have done. Uh, um, in the way that they wrote songs, right? Or the way that they developed the songs. Mm -hmm. So maybe that helped 
in you know in sort of imparted some of that idea into the way the way they st- they changed in terms of the writing right it's also the year that they discovered psychedelics you know for the first time so Colin, I'm disappointed you didn't have more technical uh, details there on the, on the tape machines and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm trying to keep on the nerdiness. No, no. I'm su- surprised he doesn't have pictures of me. <laughs> I love how it starts to glaze over just enough that I get <laughs> No, no. I, 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 hey, I love it. That's that's why podcasting is great. But it, I guess my point being, they didn't just turn out two albums. The two albums were Help and Rubber Soul in one year, which is... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Phenomenal, yeah. So, Rubber Soul is the sixth studio album recorded by the Beatles after Help and before Revolver. It was recorded from early October until early November in 1965, released on December the 3rd, 1965. This was the last year in which the Beatles would record and release two albums in the same calendar year. Now, worth mentioning that the track list on the Canadian and U.S. version of Rubber Soul is different from the UK release, which is now the official release and the one we're going to be talking about. In the Canadian U.S. release, they removed Drive My Car, Nowhere Man, What Goes On, and If I Needed Someone. And then they added I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love. So, side one of Rubber Soul, North American version, is I've Just Seen a Face, Norwegian Wood, You Won't See Me, Think for Yourself, The Word, and Michelle. The UK version was Drive My Car, so that's a different leadoff track, Norwegian Wood, You Won't See Me, Nowhere Man, which is not on the North American version, Think for Yourself, The Word, and Michelle. Side two, North American version, was It's Only Love, Girl, I'm Looking Through You, In My Life, Wait, and Run For Your Life. The UK version was What Goes On, so that's not on the North American version, Girl, I'm Looking Through You, In My Life, Wait, If I Needed Someone, and Run For Your Life. Now, having said all that, guys, can you imagine, this has always struck me as strange, you have a group like the Beatles selling millions of records, and the record company comes in and basically cannibalizes your records by deleting tracks and adding tracks. Now, surely that must have ticked them off, don't you think? You know what? I think that America was right. I think that uh, starting the record with I've Just Seen a Face instead of Drive My Car uh, is better. I mean, Drive My Car is a fun song, but it's a silly song. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a novelty song. And I've Just Seen a Face is the song. That, like, I think maybe somebody had the wherewithal to say, this is a change for the Beatles, and I want to announce that change with the very right. first song. Drive My Car doesn't announce a damn thing. And I, I, the only thing I feel, I feel sorry for George, because it's his song that gets... That gets the heave ho at the end. If I need a song, which is which is a good song, weird message, but good song. That's an interesting skew on it. Was uh, maybe that's what the the record company was thinking was to 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 give it that kind of a start. Now, uh, you referred to it earlier about things going on in the world at that time. Uh, John Lennon once said, he said, "Rubber Soul was the pot album, Revolver was the acid album." Would you guys agree with that that approach? 
Sure. I, I, I mean, I think that obviously something had had opened their minds to other possibilities. And there, it's not a particularly um, hallucinogenic record, Rubber Soul, where Revolver is definitely a hallucinogenic record. You know, Rubber Soul is is the is the is the uh, the sensual version of what it feels like to make music. So, and that's pot, right? That's like this the intensifying feelings, and and uh, so all of a sudden, acoustic guitars become ravishing sounds, and and. So I, I get that. I mean, it's still amazing. It all happened within a matter of months anyway. Well, it's also the, I think, I mean, that's, that's probably the first drug that they were introduced to, you know, as a, as an evolution of experiencing drugs. That was the first one, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, and McCartney says uh, in the interview I see anyways, he says, neither of those albums were actually recorded under the influence. Uh, on Pepper, we started to use stuff in the studio, but on the earlier albums, we'd have been using those drugs socially. So in that sense, the drugs informed what we did. Uh, and he says, uh, we could never have written all those songs if we were always stoned. So he kind of makes that clear. So let's get this going. We will take the vinyl out of the album sleeve we're going old school it's vinyl and let's put this on the turntable and we are going with the british version so it is cut one side one drive my car that's the girl what she wanted to be she said baby can't you see i want to be famous i start the screen but you can do something in between baby you, you know one of the things that musicians car. feel is that it's really difficult to make better guitar sounds than than the Beatles. Now, this is, a, to my mind, a throwaway song, but the, the guitar sound is, is amazing. It's just, they just knew how to buzz that thing out enough so that yeah. it had a lot of bite and, uh, and yet wasn't all blown up. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's, it, they still are the gold standard for a lot of guitar sounds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and and you know, as you study those songs, uh, and you, you know, I'm guilty of breaking them apart, listening to them as a whole. You know, there's all these different facets you can experience with with great recordings, and the Beatles certainly set a gold standard. So when you listen to just the guitar parts, because as a player, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, this was the guitar used, this is probably the amp, this is probably the way it was mic'd, and um, and then you realize that. There's, um, you know, you can get pretty close, but there's always this sort of magical, uh, there's magical sonics in some of those tracks and in the parts that, 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 you know, if I was again talking slightly technical, you know, they did manipulate sounds for sure. Even, you know, earlier on, they probably were more conservative about it because it was more about the idea of, of getting quality recordings um, and that part of that was that, you know, it was all naturally done and they might add, they might enhance those, uh, sounds with, you know, or cut sounds with frequency, you know, like with EQing. But, but by that point, I'm pretty sure that they also, they, they started driving things a little bit harder and they, they, there's a sound that comes out of that gear that, um, I've experienced personally. And, um, and that's a, a really great testament to that is that that guitar sound is it's a combination of them boosting top end in the EQ and, and a certain amount of compression coming out of the, out of the signal into uh, what they, you know, it's called an RS uh, um, 
120 compressor that they used. Anyway, so that's that to me is also a study in itself. And when you listen to some of those songs and you're fortunate enough to get the isolated tracks, which I've also been, and you know, we've lost, Jim and I have listened to stuff. I played them. We've had stuff over the years where you can actually hear the separated tracks, you know, you hear these sounds and you're like, it sounds incredible, you know, on its own. And then you can hear these, you know, manipulation treatments to them. So that's a great song for that. I think it's been treated for sure. Well, from what from what I've read, heavily influenced by Otis Redding's Respect. So it has that similar, yeah. the riffing lines on bass and low guitar, which apparently Harrison was really into uh, Otis Redding and that song at that time. And he and McCartney worked really hard on that sort of bass and, and low guitar thing. So is that is that what the distinctive sound is? Well, I think it's also in the top end. Like there's this, when the, as Jim suggests at the beginning, you know, the opening riff, it just cuts. Like it's just got this cutting poppy sound that but it sounds still sounds musical it doesn't sound harsh you know and that was always the thing i i always went to was how do they get it to sound so like cut so well but it's not harsh it's still very musical it was recorded uh it's the first beatles session to go past midnight and i had written in my notes i wanted to ask you do you prefer to work late at night as an artist, the way the Beatles in their prime seem to, they'd go in and start their sessions at 10 at night and they'd work right through. Is, is there some special magical thing to that? Or would you just assume be in bed at that hour? Well, uh, first of all, there's, there's a couple of things. When we were in Abbey Road and the, you, you get, you see the, these things, you know, those guys were still signing in and out. I mean, they were still definitely institutionalized by, by Abbey Road and by the, by the, uh, by the powers that be. So, the idea that we were working late was they, they felt like bad boys, you know, Oh my God, we're, we're working past midnight and, and, and we have to keep an engineer here and there's going to be all complicated with the union. I think that's, that's amazing. Cause we've Colin and I have never experienced that studios are 24 hour operations and uh, you come and go whenever you want. And that's always the way it's been for our, our career. Um, you know what I, I've experienced for me, I'm, I'm not, I don't particularly like going really late, but I, I work with people that do like going very late. So what I like and what I think is best is a proscribed time. So whatever that time is, I'd say 10, 10 hours is about what you can do productively. You can certainly stretch it out, but if you're stretching it out, there's usually some OCD reason that's not necessarily being, it's not necessarily going to come to fruition, you know? So I think 10 hours is about all, all, all they, you can do. And, I mean, you know, having read the Mark Lewison book, the Beatles were incredibly disciplined. They, 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 they did things. I mean, when you realize that they, when an hour later they were doing tracks, you know, they were doing take 78, 78 takes in, in an hour. Like how, how did they do that? So they were really driven and they really knew what they were trying to do. And I doubt they wasted a lot of time, perhaps towards the end they did, but that, that period of time is very brief. You know, at the end, it's very brief where they they don't have any restraints and they can do whatever they want. I, I don't want to get too far down a, a wormhole here, or actually, maybe I do. But Jim, have you have you recorded or been in Abbey Road? Yeah, we were we were there. I don't know two two three years ago, and we had a tour. Actually, you know, it was a time when they were doing uh, the live from Abbey Road sessions, and Blondie yeah. was doing 
per session. So we sat in on that. It, it's it's truly amazing. And, and I have seen this in, in movies. I have seen this. I've read about it. And it was it, it's chilling to, to see. And also how stupid it is. I mean, it, it's dumb to have a, 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 the control room way up there. It, it, you lose all contact. And so and I've always been fascinated by how the Beatles operated under a system that was so tight and made them slightly powerless, even though they were the biggest, most popular band in the world. So we'll move on to cut two, side one. Uh, Cut one, really. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 sorry. No, we're in the drive, Norwegian word, sorry. Version one recorded the first day that they started work on on sessions for Rubber Soul, and uh, not unlike Drive My Car, a completely different song, but in that there's sort of a double entendre meaning there. You know, Drive My Car. There's the punchline with uh, with Hey, well, I don't have a car yet, but when I get one, you can drive it for me. And then with Norwegian Wood, it's No, the guy's not sitting around warming himself by a fire. He's he's burning the house down and leaving. Uh, oh, so you think that too? Yeah, well, that's that's. I oh, I was just going to say that I was always under the misconception that he lit a fire to burn the house down and left, but I don't think that's true. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I thought it, that he's that he is just sitting there in front of a fire, contemplating what has just happened, which apparently is this right. infidelity. Right. I don't know if you think that he lit a fire. Maybe that's true too. I mean, maybe that is true. Yeah, I, I'm just in, in an interview that that I saw with McCartney. So McCartney says um, it's it's a song about John trying to pull a bird. It's about an affair that he had, and then <clears throat> McCartney goes on. And the end of the quote is: "In our world, the guy had to have some sort of revenge because she sent him off to sleep in the bath. It could have meant I lit a fire to keep myself warm, and wasn't the decor of her house wonderful? To your point, Jim, but it didn't. It meant burn the house down as an act oh. of revenge and we left there and went off <laughs> so that, oh my but, god but no, I'm i have t- been under the impression right to this moment that oh. i was wrong with my childhood impression that he no. i thought that was fascinating i'm listening i think he burns the house down <laughs> wow she was so nice to him yeah. and he burns the house down <laughs> i no. never ever associated that with the end uh, of the song <laughs> no yeah no I mean i'm with you guys i was the same i thought well you know he slept in the bath and then he he got up and he he had a fire after she'd left for work or whatever and then i read that mccartney interview and i was what <laughs> now hold on my story is i thought he burned the place down when i first heard it that's what i thought and it was only subsequently that People told me that's so stupid. He didn't. He just lights a fire, warms himself, and doesn't Norwegian wood either burn well or it's the it's the the facing. It wasn't. Yeah. You know, so then I thought, oh, I I don't know where I got that arsonist uh, version of that song. Well, you but were right until right now. I guess I was right. Yeah, you were right. All you doubters. Oh, <laughs> and, and Colin, your your read wasn't that to start with. Completely no. I'm I'm all you know. I thought it was the blissful ending of the song where he. You know, he'd had this wonderful night and then the next day, you know, she's gone and he lights a fire to warm himself. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, what? He just had 
Oh, you had an affair with a mysterious Norwegian woman. So she I don't know. Nor- I didn't get that at all. She's Norwegian because she has Norwegian wood in her place. <laughs> I, I, Are I you just, a racist? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it, interesting musical thing here. So they, they did a first version, weren't happy with it. The second version was way heavier, and they added the, the sitar intro, uh, heavy sitar, no bass, no sitar, mainly acoustic. And then on take four, which is the one that we know, you hear the sitar was dubbed in after the rhythm track was, was laid down. Now, a, a couple of questions I wanted to ask you guys. Colin, extensive experience as a producer as well as a player, and and, and Jim, uh, as musically literate as they come. Have you ever completely scrapped a version of a song that was done like they did with and and said, we're going to start over again? Well, I can speak to Norwegian Wood from this point of view is that years and years ago, a friend of mine who was was an incredibly uh, knowledgeable Beatles fan, he... um, uh, he played me. He played me a uh, a version which was apparently the first version of Norwegian Wood, and it was done. Uh, you know, if you know the song, uh, the guitar's capoed at two, right? So the original version, because it's like a D figure, you know, you play like a D chord and do that. The original version, the first version, was them just playing in D. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. And it's slower, she and Lennon's singing, and his voice is kind of at the low end of his of his range, so it sounds it sounds kind of dragged out, and it doesn't have the spirit of the song. So that's the version they did, and then they re-recorded it and went to Capo 2 and raised the key, and then subsequently, then that raised the um, the tempo of the song, and then everything came together from that. So I remember somewhere in my stash, I have a version of it, and it's the first version, and it's done in D. But the actual recorded version is done up is capo two, like it's up, um, you know, it's in E. So that's why you would scrap it. It just didn't. It didn't. It was just didn't work as that version of it. Jim, have you done that? Does any song jump to mind where you said, nah, no good, start from scratch? Uh, I don't know if any song jumps to mind, but absolutely have I, I have scrapped a song. We commonly in, in both my band and, and Blue Rodeo, we will record all together so that we have a, a large portion of the song done. And uh, But often it's tempo. Often it's, uh, it's well, it's kind of like what Colin is, is describing, although it's also a key issue. It's also that the key often denotes a certain tempo. And uh, um, so sometimes you just do songs either too fast or too slow. And it's not obvious to you because you started recording it at 11 in the morning and your, your energy was a certain level. And then later in the afternoon, you think that's either way too zippy or it's just too draggy. So we've, we've certainly done that. I, I think in much the same manner that they did, where they had to put it, you have to put it all together to, to see what it, how it, how it works. And, uh, you know, I, what do they lose? They lost a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sitar, uh, have, have either of you guys ever 
had one in your hands to try to play it. And what do you what do you think? What how, what, how did it change the song, Jim? Oh, I, I loved the sitar when it first came out. Of course, I was ten years old, so I had no idea what that instrument was or where it came from. But uh, you know, subsequently, we all learned about that. Ravi Shankar and 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 George's interest. Um, but I just thought it was incredibly cool. And again, I think it was it was that time in my life when I was ready to hear a broader, a, a, you know, a, a more varied palette from the Beatles. So. I loved it as soon as I heard it. And of course oh, yeah. they use it in a very, a very uh, uh, melodic and simple way to reinforce this melody that's already there. Yes, I have had one in my hands and immediately it's really hard to keep it still. It's, it's got the big bulb on the end and, and that slides around in your, in your, in your lap. And it, I don't know, I couldn't, I didn't have enough time, but I couldn't make, it make a nice noise. Yeah, I think it's a very disciplined instrument and it it sounds fluid and easy when you hear it, but to actually apply that, you know, and do it is a whole different animal. Like it is a, it's a discipline. And uh, he was, you know what, to his credit, he was, he was very gifted at adapting his talents to instrument, like an instrument like that, George, you know, because you have to, Nobody had done that before him, you know. Yeah. Do you remember the, in the concert for Bangladesh when Ravi Shankar comes out and he's, he's playing and the guys are all playing and then everybody claps. Yeah. And he says, we're just tuning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's imagine what you're going to think when we play the songs. <laughs> so you realize what we were as North American audiences, how little we knew about, about um, Asian Indian um Music. And, and then Harrison, in a 1990 interview that I saw, uh, he was talking about the inclusion. And to his memory, he says it was quite spontaneous. Uh, we just mic'd it up. Uh, I put it on and it just seemed to hit the spot for the song. So that's that's his recollection of it. But I mean, agreed that that's the most distinctive thing about the track would be the sitar. Well, the sitar and the story. The story was, you know, I mean, that was also you realized Everything prior to that, even though there were certain songs that were personal, like Help, that we didn't realize were personal, this this seemed personal. This seemed like this was really a song about John Lennon. And that was brand new information for my little 10-year-old mind. I thought uh, that pop songs has existed out here and the artist w- existed here, whether they wrote them or just sang them. But the story was somebody else. It was imaginative. So I think that the story was pretty impactful too. Mm-hmm. Colin, yeah, and clearly, clearly influenced by the um, the Dylan uh, Dylan S opening of uh, of yourself to a song, you know, and the narrative didn't necessarily. I mean, Dylan obviously didn't write about himself a lot, but the but the sensibility of it was that it seemed personal, you know, and in and in Lennon's case, it was personal. So the so the you know <clears throat> the influence was clearly there, and and because it was. I mean, as the whole record goes, as being very much influenced as an acoustic record in the ideal sense. So, so yeah, that song really, really is kind of the essence of that, the beginning of that. Next cut on the first side, we go into You Won't See Me. When I call you up. So 
recording for Rubber Soul. Uh, what a day that was. 13 hours. They needed to finish the album. Four songs. Uh, Girl, I'm Looking Through You, Wait, and the aforementioned You Won't See Me. Uh, right. Same chords as Eight Days a Week that McCartney admits they borrowed from. There was a Four Tops hit called It's the Same Old Song. And that went EFD. And I guess this one goes BDA, which you guys would understand uh, far more than, than I would being musicians. But is that a technique that you will use going up or down a step to slightly alter a melody that you've used before? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's risky uh, because, <laughs> because you're going to end up they're going to end up sounding the same. It's funny that that now that you said that, that uh, for top song, I can I can certainly hear that. Um, I don't know. You know, I think that in in McCartney's canon, it was it was something that he used, but he was brilliant enough to to always make the melody slightly different and and certainly. Yeah. And the one thing I was going to say about this is that if you have been a band in the in the twentieth century, you cannot help but mimic beetle background vocals you know once they do once they do the the call and, and response anytime you do it in any song and all the all the stuff that we've done together you realize when you're doing beetle harmonies you realize when you're putting a certain beetle harmony harmony on the top and you also realize when you're doing the call and response how they do them rhythmically rhythmically what they say i mean they were they really i don't know it's almost as if they created a library of, of, of sounds that, that, that the rest of us have just borrowed from. I, I love it when you guys do the harmonies. Uh, what, you know, whether they're an homage to the Beatles or you make them your own, but I, I, just, I just think it adds such beauty to a song, whether it's a Blue Rodeo song or a Jim Cuddy song or a Beatles song. I mean, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm with you. The Beatles were great, but I just, when, when you're doing it, <laughs> when you're doing it with Blue Rodeo or with the, with the Jim Cuddy band, are you going, I want to, I don't want to copy, but I want to, emulate kind of what they were doing in you won't see me or eight days a week or does that go through your mind without a doubt i mean i don't think that we're we don't plan on it we do it and we we're we're in the midst of doing it and we all go "Mm -hmm. yep i know i know no need to say it (laughs) you know it's like having the best cookbook in front of you and you pick the best recipe you know and sometimes this works you know and it works in a way that you are fulfilled musically too. So, you know, yeah. Well, they did set our early and they set it high. Well, the, the, clock, the song clocked in at 322, which was the longest song that they'd recorded to that point. And, and it got me thinking about, about long songs and, and uh, you guys have both referred to it. This was kind of the album where the Beatles really started to assert themselves more independently. George Martin was still there, of course, but they were starting to do things that they wanted to do. So I looked at an album of yours Diamond Mine, which I believe was the second Blue Rodeo album. Mm-hmm. So you'd had the first album, which, I mean, <clears throat> when it first came out, uh, it, it didn't sell as well as you'd like, but then it gathered momentum. And I mean, now it's a, it's a monster. But you're in there and you're doing Diamond Mind. And to my recollection, a fairly experimental record. It had the instrumental pieces and then the title track cuts in at well over eight minutes. Was there a feeling of at the time of trying to assert yourself and do your own thing a bit, take some artistic freedom or am I, am I fishing off the wrong pier? 
Oh, no, no, no. You're not doing what you just said. Um, <laughs> no, that was, you know, we had, we had come from making outskirts. Our first record was with Terry Brown, who was very much a traditional producer, told us what to do, made us all uh, perform individually, cut tracks, you know, so, and we all followed it and it all worked out. <clears throat> and we also knew that we wanted to do something entirely different from our next record. Got Malcolm Byrne, went into an old uh, movie theater uh, up off the Danforth, created a studio and did whatever we wanted. And so we were popular enough at the time that we could get away with that. But it was also, it was an act of, of relief. It was, it was, we didn't want any restraints on us and we wanted to do all these songs and uh, Diamond Mine was just what it was. I mean, we had always been a jamming band. We had always played songs to whatever length they, they happened to be depending on the soloing. And so it was natural for us to do Diamond Mine that way. And we were just lucky that again, we were, we were enough in the, in the public's mind that radio stations played a lot, some radio stations played the entire version. There was also a cut down version, but we never dealt with three minute songs. We always dealt with five minute songs, six minute songs, four and a half minute songs. So it wasn't as much of a stretch for us. <clears throat> and, uh, but just using our, you know, playing our strong hand at that point. Colin, I'm going to let you lead off on Nowhere Man, the next cut. He's a real nowhere man. Sitting in his nowhere land Making all his nowhere plans for nobody Doesn't It has this sort of folk element to it, the basis of it, but it also has this electric element that was, well, you, you know, I would say it was part, part of the production value of the song. And, um, uh, the most significant, you know, part guitar-wise that everybody always makes note of. And when I was growing up, I could never figure out, like, how did they get that guitar solo sound, you know? Because it it just, it's, again, one of those sounds where you're, you're you know, my, my curiosity is always, how did they get it? What did they use, you know? And, and that song is the first time... Um, that uh, they, John and George had gotten Stratocasters in 1964, but they didn't use them. You know, they, they had acquired them, but they hadn't used them. So that was the first time they used a, uh, and, uh, used a Stratocaster on a record. But what they did with that, with the solo that everybody knows, um, first off, it's double tracked, and uh, which was a big thing because they were doing a lot of double tracking again but to my earlier comment about how they would they're starting to implement the possibility of more tracks because they were using two machines and bouncing between the two so they could do that stuff more anyways it's a stratocaster that um you'd never heard on a beatles record before and they double tracked it and the way they got the sound was they actually they did what they call direct injection, and we call that DI now. Like it's it's a commonplace uh, technique in recording. You know, uh, you do it all the time. But back then, it was new. They called it direct injection, and so the, it's a Stratocaster going into a DI box, into a Fairchild compressor, into the the uh, console to tape. So. Just that, from a production standpoint, it's a very 
you know, it had never been done before. It's done, it's been done a million times now. But back then it had never been done. So again, it was another one of those things where you, I finally, you know, my friend taught me years ago, oh, here's what they did to get that sound. And then I listened to it and I go, oh, of course it's that. Like, because you know the instruments now, you know the sound, but you just didn't know how they got it. So that song for me represents, to your question, a, a great musical piece of music, but it is got some production value that is, again, a benchmark. It's a beginning. It's a, it's a genesis of something that then became common. Right. Massive amount of treble, too. Does that does that contribute to the distinct That's sound? partly in the compression. Well, it's a Strat. So a Stratocaster, you know, into a compressor. And again, like I said earlier, you know, they had on the console that they used. Now, I want to get really nerdy. They used the, the console they used was called a Red 51 console. They were made by EMI. And that was a console that they, they basically started it when they started recording in 1963. The console that um, that EMI had at Abbey Road is called a Red 37, and it was then they they, they had a, uh, the next version was a Red 51. Well, that console had two. It had uh, a section for the EQ, which was a treble and a bass, you know. And then you would change out different cards depending on uh, the kind of EQing potential you would have from those knobs. And one was, you know, there was a classical card. And there was a pop card and you would switch them out. Well, the Beatles used the pop card and then they would they would be able to carve out or add more treble and bass. So there's also been enhanced. They enhanced a lot of those signals to tape with more top end because they knew they were going to go through certain generations in their bounce, you know, the bouncing between tracks and then by the time they got to the, the tape transfer for mix, you're always going to lose a certain amount of top end. So they would add it in right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's partly the reason why those records, the, those sounds always seem to have that top end, that clear, because they, they actually did, you know, they, they enhanced it a lot of times to, to tape. Jim, songwriter's point of view. <laughs> Sorry, you asked. <laughs> I want to make it. I want to make a joke, but it's actually really fascinating. <laughs> I'll keep it short next time. No, no, no. Keep doing your doing. But that's why they have editing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a huge Beatles fan, and that's all great stuff. <laughs> but no, but songwriter's point of view. Uh, I mean, it, it's a clearly. I think anyways, to me, Jim, a, a confessional song, something more, he's, he's giving something of himself. Do you get that out of it? For me, I think that uh, this was one of the mind benders, you know, 10 years old. I'm listening to Nowhere Man and I think this means something. This, this, is, this is John pointing a finger, G gently and kindly, but pointing a finger. And then, you know, having the backup as, isn't he a bit like you and me? Um, but no, I think it's it, it it's uh, it's the you song that that became so in this from the '60s on that became such a such a such an important song of, of wagging a finger at somebody and saying you are doing this, you are doing that. And again, it's a very gentle version. But I wanted to ask you guys for some reason I so I rem remember this as a single from that record. It, what was I know that um, we can work it out. Day Tripper came out first. But 
Was this the first single from Rubber Soul? It was only released as a single in North America. Uh, It came out on February the 21st, 1966, so about two months after the album release, and it was the first single off the album in North America. It was Nowhere Man backed with What Goes On. It was a number one single in Canada uh, with that very distinctive ooh-la-la vocal. So that little part in in, in, uh, ooh-la-la-la, that little... little background every band in the 20th century it's the latter part of the 20th century has done we have all done ooh la 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 ooh la 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 to have a, to have a backdrop to somebody say all you have to do is smile and say yes I know we're doing this yes <laughs> uh, so we come to the first George Harrison song on the on the British release Think for Yourself uh, one of two Harrison Penn songs in the record uh, the second one to be recorded and the most notable feature of the song from a uh, technical point of view is that Two bass guitars, both played by McCartney. One is a standard bass, and the other was the, and I don't know if it gets used much anymore. You guys would know better than me, but it was the notorious fuzz bass that got used an awful lot back in the 60s. Is is, is that still a thing? Oh, yeah, for sure. I use fuzz bass in uh, CNC a lot, you know. Um, there's different ways to do it. One is that you literally, because it's always a pedal, you know, or a you know device. You either go straight into the device, or you sort of split it out, and you have the clean bass sound, and then the fuzz bass sound, and you blend a percentage of them together. You know, sometimes the clean sounds a little more prominent than the, than the fuzz sound. So uh, that may have been the case in what they did back then. You know, Jim. Uh, Rena, I'm on a Zoom call. <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. Hey, it's it's uh, we're all recording at home. Jim, uh, I mean, think for yourself. Uh, is it uh, is it just kind of a filler track? No, I mean, I don't think one of Harrison's greatest. No, uh, no, I don't know. I, I think it's a good, good, solid track. I, I think it certainly it certainly fit, and it also well because you know I'm referring more com- commonly to the North American version. It's the first song that gave some that had some bite, so that had some excitement, and so. It you know you have the 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 poppy the folky the and then and then all of a sudden you have this one from George that that uh, has a little bit of rock and roll to it. So I thought it was important in the in the running order of the of the uh, of the record. And no, it doesn't seem like a weak track to me for George. Uh, and then on the on the British release that goes into the word. Uh, which was, this is interesting. This is one of the first Beatles songs that McCartney actually admits they wrote under the influence of weed. So he says, this is his quote, he says, we smoked a bit of pot, then we wrote out a multicolored lyric sheet. The first time we'd ever done that. We normally didn't smoke when we were working. It got in the way of songwriting because it would just cloud your mind. Uh, But he said, we did this multicolor thing with this song. Does it sound like a pot song to you, Jim? (laughs) <laughs> well, if it if it is if it's a if it sounds like a pot song, it's not a great endorsement for writing on pot. But 
it's a pretty it's a pretty lightweight song. You know, yeah. it's fine, and it somehow it talks about the ethos of the day. And the word is yeah. love, um, which is great, but it doesn't really say anything. And it's it's pretty it's a pretty well worn path for the Beatles. So for me, that's that's a bit of filler. The word's a bit of filler. I, it's still great. I mean, the, the 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 vocal harmonies are great. It sounds so amazing, but yeah. it's a bit of filler as a song to me. The thing I read about it was that the word was was sort of a was a sort of early slang term to sort of you tell your people or in your in your group that you know hey have you you know uh, have you heard the word and the word was like code for have you smoked any weed. It does highlight that kind of unique drumming style that Ringo had. You know, the left drummer playing a right hand kit. And so during the fills, he'd come off the he'd come off the snare to the toms, leading with his left hand, sort of going backwards. Gives him a really unique sound, and I think I think you can hear it on this cut. Uh, Jim, what's your take on Ringo as a drummer? Oh my God, I, I, it's hard for me to listen to criticism of Ringo as a drummer because Ringo was the perfect pop drummer when they were just a pop band. He was the perfect transition drummer. He did all kinds of inventive things to create sounds. And then when they got psychedelic, he, I mean, again, when people drum like Ringo, they say, you're drumming like Ringo. Nobody else sounds like that. Now you think two sticks, two arms, two feet, and the same kit that everybody has. And if you can create a character sound, and he did it about three times, you know, nobody drums, if you, okay, okay I'll put this to Colin. Anybody that drums like they drum in rain, that's Ringo. You're drumming like Ringo. Uh, you know, the splashy hi-hats in the early puss stuff. I think, I think he was absolutely brilliant. And I, and yeah. I think that it's, it's, much, it's much harder to create a, an identifiable character with an instrument than it is to be a virtuoso. That's yeah. what I think. And I also think that he was incredibly inventive in the parts that he did come up with for those songs. You know, they seem like they seem like they were always there. You know, they're the perfect accompaniment to those songs. And he had to come up with them. Or as a group, they had to negotiate that direction. And that absolutely, uh, the talent involved in that is immeasurable. And, you know, people just think, well, yeah, he was just banging on some, it's not, it has nothing to do, to do with that. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. He evolved as much as they did, you know, sure. it never felt like he, somebody, you know, in this way to say, well, he kind of got left behind, you know, his patterns or his ideas or his, his contributions didn't evolve every bit as much as their songwriting and the, you know, performances did. It, it absolutely did. And then the first side on the British release closes out with Michelle. Interesting McCartney talking. He says, it was a tune I'd written in, in the Chet Atkins finger-picking style. Uh, there's a song yeah. he did called uh, Trambone with a repetitive top line. So he played a bass line while playing a melody. And that was an innovation to McCartney at the time. Classical guitarist did it, but no rock and roll guitarist had played it. And uh, he based the song on that finger-picking style. You can really hear that when it gets pointed out. Michelle, my baby. 
I just think it's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant piece of music, and uh, and again shows how um, how you know effortless, effortlessly it seemed Paul was able to shift from one style and and sentiment to another, and you know that song's a masterpiece in every way for me. Well, I like the fact that whenever the Beatles said they copied something, you have to think about it to, to hear what they copied because they were so original that even their copies sound original. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, drive my car being Otis Redding's like, okay, I kind of can hear it, but it doesn't sound like that. Yeah. You, did, you didn't do it. Uh, and Michelle is, I understand you learn a technique and all of a sudden something comes. And I remember, wasn't there a quote with, with from John Lennon saying, you know, I'm a musician. And if you gave me anything, any item at all, I would make a sound on it and create a, create a song. And I think, yeah, that's that's what they were. You know, as 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 loud it is as Paul McCartney is, I think he's still underrated as as a, a composer genius of the 20th century. I just think the guy <clears throat> put out a lot of stuff, so I guess there's there are some false steps. But his ability to draw a melody out of the air and create something that's moving and beautifully structured. And Michelle's a, like Colin says, it's just beautiful. And I, I, again, I remember, you know, going through the first side of the record and getting to Michelle and just, just being happy to hear something sweet and lovely. I was still young enough that, you know, I, the the record was, took some listening, but not Michelle. Michelle was a little gift as this is this is just sweetness, and you'll like this right away. And well, I still love it the same way. Well, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't if I didn't jump in here with uh, your reference to McCartney as being one of the greatest writers of pop songs of in history uh, mm-hmm. is 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 well taken. But it, it's and I don't expect you have the secret, or if if you do have the secret, you can't share it. But what Lennon and McCartney did was. They wrote hooks. They wrote hooks and they wrote songs that people are singing 50 years later. And you and your musical partner have that gift. You have written so many hooks and melodies that we all know. Where does that come from? <laughs> Do you sit down and go, <laughs> no, okay, I'm gonna write, the, a, I'm gonna write yeah, a hook. <laughs> yeah, it is the... Uh, it's the impossible to answer question. I think that it, it, it comes, it is born of a lot of trial and error. It's born of determination. It's born obviously of some access that, that artists have to, to a, a huge well of, of sounds and, 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 uh, and, uh, and stories. And <clears throat> it's just, it's so much about pleasing yourself. It's so much about, you know, I, I think Colin's probably the same way. Most people I know that are musicians are the same way. Ever since I was a kid, music was completely and absolutely arresting for me. I couldn't carry on a conversation if there was music in the background that I wanted to hear. I just would be completely absorbed by it. So with that amount of attention and, you know, some invention, you just keep working at it and you just keep trying things out and, uh, and I'm lucky to have had such a such a creative partner, uh, 
Greg and I were have been writing partners since the late seventies, and that's and we have nurtured each other. We have conflicted each other. We have done all these things that are kind of necessary to keep keep the fires burning. That was a lot of fun to listen to again, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you've enjoyed this episode, or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this little podcast. Any little bit helps, and you can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. I'd appreciate it much later. Uh, Look out for part two of my conversation with Jim and Colin, where we talk about side two of the classic Beatles 1965 release, Rubber Soul. That will drop in just a few days from now. And if you are a big fan of Blue Rodeo, and I know there are a lot of you who are, you might want to check out series two, episodes 11 and 12, when our dynamic duo dug into Abbey Road. So you can look for that in the archive. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials on Twitter, Twitter, X, and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the.romicast at gmail.com. And positive reviews and shares on your social channels, also a big help. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you later. get tired of being Beatles. I play the drums, but I play a guitar and I too play a guitar.